As you grab a seat in this moment on this Pentecost Sunday, would you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9? And if you have a Bible with you, that's great. If you don't, no problem. That red book in the pew in front of you is our pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love it to be in your life. It's now yours to take home. If you're online, I'm going to read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. We're in the last Sunday of a sermon series that we began on Easter Sunday. And the sermon series is called Transformed, and we're taking a look at how Jesus, in his resurrected body, fully spirit, fully physical, defeated death, encounters people in person, meets them in the midst of whatever emotional state that they're in, whether they be filled with fear or doubt or anger or confusion, and Jesus transforms them in ways that nothing else can. And right now, we're going to get to perhaps one of the most dramatic transformation stories in the New Testament. And I love seeing how significant this is in context of all the other transformation stories in the New Testament. Some are radically insane like this. And some are subtle. All are equally powerful. You have a man named Saul of Tarsus who perhaps in the first century was the most significant person against Jesus on the planet. And we're going to see how this man who was so against Jesus was transformed in such a way that he became one of the greatest leaders for the church. He went from an abusive man, a bitter man, a man who approved murder, who was discontent, who was agitated, who could never sleep, who was always restless, ultimately became a man who said, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether in plenty or in want, whether well-fed or hungry, no matter what I have, I have learned the secret of being content. I have joy. I have peace. I have a satisfaction. I have a purpose. I can sleep at night. How can that transformation happen? Well, let's take a look. Acts 9, 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, let me hear you say men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city. And you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. 
The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he, reg he regained his strength. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. All right, here we have this famous text. We have this man who, in many ways, Saul of Tarsus reminds me of Javert from Les Miserables. He is so discontent. He's on this mission against Jean Valjean. And here we have this man, Saul of Tarsus, who is on a mission to put out, to blot out, to kill, to destroy the men and women who were following Jesus. This is long before they received the title of Christians. They were simply referred to as the way because this was a way of life. It changed everything in their lives. And it was so countercultural because the spirit had fallen on the young and the old, on men and women, and it was men and it was women and it was young and it was old who were leaders in the church, who were being used by God in a culture that only used elderly men. And it was all people who put their faith and trust in Jesus that now were transformed. And Saul was actually going to the high priest to get permission, the papers, to go into the synagogues and find out these Jewish believers who were now following the way of Jesus so he could drag them back and have them flogged. And yet he was breathing murderous threats against them. He was against Jesus in such an extreme way that Jesus met him and said, I want to use you as an instrument of peace. I want you to be an ambassador. I want you to open up my, my love and my kingdom to every non-Jewish person on the planet. We call them Gentiles. We are here because the resurrected Jesus encountered one of the most significantly against Jesus men on the planet. And so here we are in this place, and I've got to tell you that every single one of us in the same way is against Jesus. And if you're not against Jesus, you'll never have a relationship with him. Let me say that again. If you're never against Jesus, you'll never really experience Jesus. Because if you're never against Jesus, then who you are encountering, who you are believing, who you think Jesus is, is actually a figment of your imagination. Hang with me here. There's hope in this passage. Take a look at this. Saul has this encounter, 
It says in verse 3, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. If you were here with us last week, Revelation 1 says that Jesus, in his resurrected state at the right hand of the Father, now has a face that shines as bright as the fullness of sun. And so Saul, on the road to Damascus, has an encounter with this being face-to-face with the radiance of the sun. This now breaks all of his definitions of who God is. He thought he had God figured out. He thought he had God in a box. He thought that he had everything worked out in such a way in his mind that he wasn't against God. Oh, he was for God and how he lived. He was for God and how he loved. He was for God and how he lived out all the different areas of his life. And now all of a sudden, he experiences this being that is outside of his definition of who God is, and he is overwhelmed. And what does he say in response? Who are you, Lord? You see, some of us, we love everything about Jesus. And if we truly love everything about Jesus, then we're not encountering the real Jesus. There's some of us here today who love everything about God. He fits neatly into our life. He's comforting the ways he wants us to be comforted. We want him to be comforting. He's encouraging in the ways we want him to be encouraging. And if there's nothing in your view of God that doesn't challenge you, that doesn't terrify you, that doesn't overwhelm you, that doesn't cause you to stop in your tracks, That God is the God of your imagination. You see, the deepest need of your heart is not the product of your heart's deepest need. You see, some of us, the way we were raised, we are longing for God simply to comfort us. And we look at a God and we say, God, you are a comforting God. And we look at only those verses in Scripture. And whenever we encounter anything about a God who challenges us, who calls us to more, who calls us to love our enemies, to step out in society, even if it's countercultural, to lay your life down, to be a voice for the voiceless, to, to, to serve other people. We get terrified. You see, the apostle Paul in this moment is simply a man named Saul, and there is a God who encounters him that completely overwhelms his definition of who God is, and he is stopped dead in his tracks. He goes blind. This is not a figment of his imagination. This is not a hallucination. He has a physical encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and it is bigger than he can comprehend, and it changes, it transforms his life. You see, there's no other explanation for how a man who would be so self-centered, so selfish, so bitter, so, so murderous, so, so discontent to be so transformed that he would now live for this Jesus. Had he not had an encounter with one that was different than him, that was bigger than a product or a figment of his imagination. And something happens here that sets the course for the rest of his ministry. Take a look. This is what happens. He says, who are you, Lord? And he says, it is I, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, a few verses earlier, it says this, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? No, he doesn't say that, does he? Does it say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? 
because that's what he's been doing. No, it doesn't say that. It says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul has been living his life persecuting people, and now a being comes, he is blinded, and this being says to him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you condemning me? Why are you bitter about me? Why are you jealous about me? Why are you trying to snuff out me? And that sets the course for the rest of his life. All of his writing then has to do with that. Romans 6, which we're going to talk about today. He says, don't you know that you've been baptized into Christ? You've been immersed into Christ. You're united with Christ. All the things that are true about Jesus are now true about you. You know what that means as a result of Saul's encounter with the risen Lord? That when God looks at you, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are as beautiful as his son. You are as beloved as his son. You are as treasured as his son. You are as righteous as his son. The apostle Paul says that you have been raised with Christ, and right now, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are right now, present tense, at the right hand of the Father in Christ. It took Paul decades to allow this truth to transform him in such a way that he got to a place of contentment. How are you going to let it transform your life? Because when this truth comes in your life, you begin to realize that you can never be poor again, even when you lose your job. When the king of kings has said, I have given you everything, you can never be discouraged again about what people say about you because you have the most weighty voice in the cosmos saying, you are beloved, you are chosen, you are a masterpiece. You'll never get hung up about how you look because God looks at you in Christ and says, you are my beloved, you are my masterpiece. I have chosen you, you are worthy to die for. This is the love that you've been looking for your entire life. When you allow this truth to seep in your life, it's gonna change how you suffer. Because the Apostle Paul is realizing in this moment that whenever Christians suffer, whenever his people suffer, Jesus suffers as well. That every loss that you experience, Jesus loses with you. Every disappointment, Jesus is disappointed with you. Every relationship broken, Jesus' heart breaks with you. You see, this way of life, this worldview, this, this faith is the only one that says there is a God that suffers with you. There's a God that knows what it's like to lose a loved one, a son. There's a God that, that grieves with you, that carries your burdens. You know, I think about times in my life where I've, I've had a nightmare in the middle of the night, and, and, and awful nightmares, and I never tell it to my wife because I don't want her to freak out, but I have these dreams that my whole family dies. Awful, awful feeling. And I wake up, and then I, oh, then I realize that it's just been a nightmare. And I know that on those mornings, on those days that I left my family so much deeper, having had that experience. The resurrected Christ says that all the suffering that you experience on this side of eternity will one day be something that you wake up from and will look back on and say, that was just a nightmare. All that loss, all that suffering, all the wars, all the discontent, all those things have now been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus' death and resurrection. And now, I am in God's presence. I am whole. I'm with my loved ones. I'm experiencing the fullness of what God has longed for me to be. 
And here we are in this moment about to celebrate at least 15 people that are choosing to be baptized. Outside on the patio, they're going to go out. Some are going to be sprinkled. Some are going to be dunked. It's not about how much water. It's not about where the source of water comes in. This is an outward sign of this truth that Paul came to realize. That there are moments when you begin to realize that there's a part of you that has been living against Jesus. You've been living for yourself. You think that your way is better than God's way. And you come and you are stopped dead in your tracks and the Holy Spirit reveals to you that there is a moment where you've got to choose. I'm either gonna live the way of Jesus or I'm gonna live my way. And the Apostle Paul says, I don't have all the answers. I don't have things figured out. There's a lot of things that don't make sense. This is going to be dramatically countercultural, but I'm just going to choose and stop. And in this moment, give my life over to this one that is bigger than I can ever imagine. There are 15 people here today that have put their faith and trust in Jesus and have said, gosh, the way I was living, I now want to turn and I want to give my life to Christ. And it says in Scripture that in that moment, they were immersed into Christ. That's where we get the word baptizo, the Greek word which we translate baptized. And so when they get baptized with water, it's simply an outward expression of a visible demonstration of what's already true in them. And right after we worship in a moment, we're going to go outside on the patio and we get to participate in this moment. And as they go underwater, I want us to yell out, you're dead to sin. And when they come up out of the water, I want you to yell, alive in Christ. For those that will sprinkle, I want you to shout out, you're dead to sin, and then alive in Christ. Because that's language from Romans 6, where Paul says, this one who I was against loved me while I was against him. Didn't wait for me to turn and then be for him, but... He demonstrated his love to me in this, that while I was against him, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Some of you are here today, and you perhaps have this nudging, and it's, it's something that you can't describe. You don't know what it is. Maybe like the Apostle Paul in that moment, that he experienced something greater than himself that stirred his life, that perhaps in this moment or at some point today, there's going to be this, this feeling of who is this Jesus and I feel like I need to say yes to him. Though we have 15 people registered to be baptized, whenever we open it up to those who want to put their faith and trust in Jesus for the first time or who have already done so but have yet to demonstrate it publicly through baptism, we open up those water baptisms to all who would step forward. In a moment, I'm going to have all those who signed up to be baptized come up and I'm going to pray for them. And we're going to march out and we're going to get ready and we're going to sing the last song in Christ alone and then we're going to join everybody out there. But some of you perhaps, even maybe just one of you, says, I gave my life to Christ like five years ago and I haven't been baptized yet. Know that you are saved, you are secure. But today's the day to go public through water baptism. Some of you in this moment are like, oh, I want to give my life to Christ. We're going to have the prayer team come forward in a moment. They're going to be available to talk to you, to pray with you. Some of you in a moment are going to get up and you're like, where's the pool? Because I want to get dunked. I just gave my life to Christ. Well, we have elders and pastors who are going to be waiting for you right outside this patio and right out on the north lawn who would love to talk to you about what that means. You see, this is a moment for at least 15 people 
where they get to proclaim to you and to the world that they are for Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says, but this is just the beginning of a work that God wants to do in you to reveal more and more areas of your life that you give over to him. As I've been following Jesus for almost 20 years now, I realize that there's certain areas of my life that I had no idea I am living against Jesus. I don't pray as much as I long to pray. I don't ask God for help as much as I should. I rely on my strength way more than I should. I, I rely on the gifts that God has given me way more than I should. I don't give him the glory as much as I should. And he says, that's all right, come. Come, let me redeem you. Let me revive you. Let me transform you by the power of my love. For those that are in the room that have chosen to be baptized, would you come forward now in this moment? There's at least 15 who have signed up. I know some are already ready, but as they come up, can we give a thanks for this group? Some of them were confirmed. Now, some of these are renewing their baptismal vows when their parents baptized them as a child, and some are being baptized for the first time. I'm going to invite also right now in this moment our prayer team to come forward, and if they would line the sides right now in a moment as we, in a moment, we'll stand and sing together as a church family in Christ alone. If you have any prayer requests or if you have questions about what it means to give your life to Christ, would you come forward and receive prayer from them? But I'm going to pray for them, and right after that prayer, we're going to go right outside and we're going to get ready for those baptisms. We as a church family are going to sing together in Christ alone. Our worship service isn't done. After that, we're going to go outside and enjoy this sacrament together. But would you just with arms open again, as we did earlier with that, that sacrament, or the, the confirmation as we were about to partake in this sacrament of baptism, let me pray for this group. God, I thank you for these individuals, for some of them who their parents as infants chose to baptize them, entering that covenant of love. We thank you for their faithfulness. And we thank you that they've reached an age where they can themselves affirm that truth. And as they renew those baptismal vows, it's a sign, it's a symbol of the truth of who Christ says they are. And for those who are being baptized for the first time, what joy it is that they have boldness like Saul, who said, I need to get baptized before I eat and drink for the first time in three days. It's that important. We thank you for their courage, demonstrating to us what it means to live for Jesus. And God, for all of us that have yet to put our faith and trust in you, Jesus, I thank you that you pursue us out of love, that even when we are against you, you say, yeah, but I'm for you. Melt our hearts with your love. Transform us for your glory. It's in Christ alone that we live. It's in Christ alone that we love. It's in Christ alone that we are a church that exists for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray and we say together. Amen. Amen. Let's give thanks for these individuals. And why don't we stand together? As we make our way out, know that the prayer team is available for you, and let's sing in Christ alone.